It's Something for Nothing, the Rush Fan Cast. Jerry and Steve with you. Jerry, how's it going? You know, it's going all right. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. We are halfway through moving pictures, almost halfway through. Well, we were, this is part three, so we are. Oh, no, we're not really. We're not. There's seven songs on moving pictures, and once we get halfway through Limelight, we'll be halfway through. (laughs) Well, I was thinking we were halfway through our episodes. We are halfway through our episodes, and uh, it's been great. I have an even greater appreciation for this album, believe it or not. It seems impossible that one could have a greater appreciation for this album, if you ask me. So you don't have a greater appreciation after delving into it so deeply? No, I, I, always, lo- I always loved this album. I, always, I have delved into this album like this many times before in my own head. So No, I always loved it too, but I love it even more now. So you, you love it so much, you can't possibly love it more, is what you're saying. Yeah, I think that's true. All right. Okay. You can follow us on Twitter at RushFanCast, Instagram, the RushCast, email Jerry, therushcast at gmail.com. Don't forget the the, Jer. Don't forget the the. You won't get us. We're available on your favorite podcast app. The bass intro is done, as always, by our good pal Lex. Thanks, Lex, for that. And today on the Rush Fancast, Jer, we're delving deeper, as I said, into moving pictures. But before then, we've got emails. We do have emails. Do you want to hear an email? Of course I want to hear an email. Okay. So the email I have is from Jeff. Ah, Jeff. Yeah, good old Jeff. Did you ever see that, uh, that clip on YouTube? Somebody put together a Jeopardy uh, episode where everyone just says Jeff. It's Jeopardy. No, I haven't seen it's, that. It's very, very funny. All the categories <laughs> are Jeff. And the answer is always Jeff. And then the question is, what is Jeff? <laughs> and it's just, it's just like, I don't know, it's only like a couple of minutes long, but it's really funny. You mean the answer is Jeff and the question is also Jeff? I think so. Yeah. So the host just says Jeff and then they buzz in and say, who is Jeff? Right. It's very funny. <laughs> I'll have to check that out. Okay. So Jeff says, I grew up in Toronto in the seventies with musician friends. So I was familiar with Rush from pretty early on, although I liked Rush Inexplicably, I didn't become a real fan until relatively recently. Clockwork Angels is my first album and only tour. Wow. Can you believe that? I don't believe that. That's crazy. Yeah. Thank you for being my tour guides through the Rush catalog via your podcast. You show real insight and passion for the band without being afraid to be honest about your opinions. You both also appear to have the same thirst for knowledge as did the late great man himself. Neil? That's a... Yeah, I think he's talking about Neil. It's a, it's a nice compliment. That's a great compliment. One we don't deserve, for sure. I don't deserve it. That's very true. said, I wanted to share something with you if you haven't checked it out yet. Being temporarily laid off, COVID job reduction, and finding time on my hands, I stumbled upon Rush reaction videos on YouTube. If you are familiar with reaction videos, feel free to skip to the next paragraph. If you are familiar with Rush reaction videos, skip right to the end. So, Steve, are you... I'm familiar with both, but should we not skip just in case other people aren't? I don't know. Uh, the concept is somewhat self-explanatory. Content providers listen and react to songs for the first time, often by artists that they know little or nothing about. Depending on the experience and musical knowledge of the host, some solid interpretations and insights can be found. Failing that, enthusiastic response is entertaining enough. I really enjoy seeing folks discover Rush and be transfixed and converted by the tremendous music and performances What is remarkable about the videos is the atypical demographic of the providers. The majority of the videos that I've come across are hosted by people who are young, 
not with Rush band parents, are women, are hip-hop fans, or hail from non-English-speaking countries. The reactions are overwhelmingly positive, as are the comments by viewers. Unsurprisingly, the level of musicianship, quality of the lyrics, outstanding time signature transitions, and cohesiveness of the band are routinely praised. More surprising, considering the criticisms back in the day, most people love Getty's voice, and the guys are described as being very cool and way ahead of their time. I totally agree. I totally agree. I, I love, he mentions one reaction channel in, in particular called uh, Lost in Vegas, which I do watch. They, they do a great job on Rush songs. And he's right. People love Getty's voice. Almost universally. People are like, this guy's voice is amazing. What well, is amazing? It is amazing. But they, these are people who are listening to Rush for, literally for the first time. And they love his voice right off the bat. That's great. Yeah, it is great. A new so, legion of Rush fans is forming. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. Very cool. You know, I just got a good idea for another podcast we, we could do, Jaron. We're done with this one. Yeah. We could pick a band that we've never listened to before in our lives and do a podcast on that band Oof. and just do reaction, reaction podcasts. What do you think? Okay. Or we could just pick a different album that we've never heard before and do a reaction podcast on that. Us reacting to some album we've never heard before. Yeah. Do you think we could find a, <laughs> no, really I'm, I'm, and I'm for that. Do you think we could find a band though, that has like 20 albums that we've never heard that we've never heard. <laughs> how, how incredible would that be? I don't know. I'd have to think about that one. We'll have to go to allmusic.com. Do you ever go there? No, they have, well, everything. It's all, all music. It's crazy. They have entries on every band. We can just hit a random band until we get one that has 20 albums <laughs> and we'll just listen to them. <laughs> I just don't know how interesting that would be for someone who's not a fan of that particular band. Yeah, I, that's true. Yeah. I don't know. It might be fun to do, but I doubt anyone would listen. Well, that's what we thought about this podcast. <laughs> it's true. We have a few listeners and we thank you. Well, we, we thought it would be fun to do and that nobody would listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are. People are listening. We were wrong on both counts. We're wrong on a lot. <laughs> that is for sure. What we're not wrong about though, Jar, is how great Limelight is. And that's the next song we're going to talk about on Moving Pictures. Limelight. So, Jared, this opening riff of Limelight, could it be Rush's most recognizable riff? We've said that a couple of times about it, a couple of different songs. I know, but this one, I think, really is. <laughs> is this also in your top 10? <laughs> no, 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 no. I, it's not in my top 10. I'm just talking about the riff at the beginning. Yeah, the riff. Yeah. yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, the, the riff is in 7-4? I don't know. I didn't check that. Oh, I had a whole, I found a list somewhere 
where somebody breaks down all the different time signatures in the song, and I think it opens up in seven four, and it's it is one of the best intros to a song. But then I said the same thing about Spirit of Radio, Free Will, Bastille Day, Bastille Day. <laughs> We could go on and on. Well, it's a valid question. I, I may have asked it before, but I think it's a valid question when you play any of those songs, The Spirit of Radio, Limelight, Bastille Day, which is Rush's most iconic opening riff? You're talking riff, not like uh, Tom Sawyer isn't really a riff-based opening. Right, right, mm. exactly. That's a tough one. We'd have to throw it out to the audience. I, I would say it was a tie between Spirit of Radio and Limelight. Okay. Well, this is definitely in contention. Yeah. That's my only point. That's true. So your thoughts on Limelight, Jer? Oh my God. Where do we start? Where do we start, Steve? Uh, well, we could start with the opening riff, <laughs> which we did. <laughs> which we did. Okay. Check that off the box. Do you have some quotes from, from the band? I do. I band? do. I do have yeah. some quotes from the band. You want to start there? Yeah. Let's hear those. I have some too. So maybe they overlap. So Neil. Success puts a strain on the friendship and it puts strains on your day-to-day -day relationship. And it's something that we did go through. We're not immune to it, but we were able to overcome it just through our closeness. And we were able to help each other with difficulties like that. And we could deal with the pressures and things like that. I also saw an interview with Neil. I forget where it was. It was YouTube, something or other. Neil said this was his way of explaining how it felt to be, I guess, in the limelight. Extroverts do not understand introverts. <laughs> that is very true. Yeah, that is very true. Oh, it's so so true. Getty Lee. Limelight was probably more Neil's song than a lot of the songs on that album in the sense that his feelings about being in the limelight and his difficulty with coming to grips with fame and autograph seekers and a sudden lack of privacy and sudden demands on his time. He was having a very difficult time dealing with it. I mean, we all were, but I think he was having the most difficulty of all three of us adjusting in the sense that I think he's more sensitive to more things than Alex and I are. And it's harder for him to deal with those interruptions on his personal space and his desire to be alone. Being very much a person who needs that solitude, to have someone coming up to you constantly asking for your autograph is a major interruption in your own little world. I guess in the one sense that we're a little bit like misfits and the fact that we've chosen this profession that has all extreme hype and this sort of self-hyping world that we've chosen to live in, and we don't feel comfortable really in that kind of role. Mm, yeah. So I think Neil was sort of speaking for all of them, but mostly him. I mean, I think Getty and Alex felt this way a little bit, but yeah. not to the extent Neil does. Yeah. I mean, uh, you would think that, you know, they weren't super popular right off the bat. So you would think that they would have, they had a few years to adjust to slowly becoming more and more popular. Yeah. But still, you know, again, they're, they, they're not in it for the, for the game. You know what I mean? They're not in it for the business. They're not in it for the adulation. They're just in it for the music, the underlying theme. Yep. But Permanent Waves is where the dam broke, though. I mean, they burst onto the scene, and then Moving Pictures took it up a notch. Yeah. But Neil wrote this song after, after Permanent Waves. I've got a quote from Alex as well. We were very, very careful not to let it get the best of us that sudden success can really change you and you become lazy and you constantly have other people doing things for you and you lose perspective on why you're there and really what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wouldn't know from firsthand experience exactly, <laughs> but I'm sure I'm, I mean, how many bands have just lost it, right? Oh yeah. 
just the fact that these guys were able to to go through this together and and plow through it and and be able to stay together through all that yeah really is a testament to their their friendship and and being able to support each other really yeah and their dedication just to the music yeah that was the most important thing some other bands oh totally a little bit of success all of a sudden here come the the drugs and the the money the women the women three of my favorite things (laughs) (laughs) it's it's enough to ruin a man yeah, you wouldn't have done well in a band, Jerry. I think you would have uh, <laughs> you would have won all David Lee Roth on the mic. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> if I could pull off those chaps. <laughs> that would be great. Uh, so the lyrics, Jer. Why don't we go through the lyrics and as we're going through the lyrics, we'll discuss the music. How's that? That sounds like a fun idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the lyrics of the song, as you mentioned, are are very, very personal. But you know, it's also you know, I don't know if you know this, but I really, really, really hate rock songs about being on the road. You've mentioned that before. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't like any of them. You know, like, oh, woe is me. It's so hard being on the road and being open. like, blah, blah. Who cares, right? <laughs> no, I'm supposed, I'm supposed to feel, feel sorry for Bon Jovi. <laughs> right? I'm supposed to have sympathy for Bon Jovi <laughs> and his incredible life on the road. Well, you know. some people have sympathy for, for John, don't you think? I guess so. Maybe for different reasons. I don't really know. Um, but this, so this song is kind of like that. But again, it takes it away from, oh, woe is us into, you know, these are the demands on our time that we just can't deal with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It approaches the, the issue from a, obviously a different, different angle like Rush always does. And it says, you know, we are, they recognize the fact that they are very popular and people do want to hear them and interact with them as, as fans always do. But this is an explanation of why maybe they come off a little aloof, especially Neil. Yeah. It's very personal. These lyrics are very personal. Yeah. This might be the first song that they really started getting personal on. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Someone will correct me. I know, but I think that might be the case. So we start out living on a lighted stage, approaches the unreal. Can you imagine? No. How how unreal it would be to be in front of the crowd at Mad- Madison Square Garden. It's unreal. Must be incredible. But also living, you know, living living on a lighted stage is also always being in the public eye. Mm-hmm. It's not just one thing to be on a stage and playing, but you know, when you're famous, like you said earlier, people just want a piece of you all the time. You're always in the spotlight. Always in the spotlight. The interview I saw with Neil, he was saying the thing that really gets him is when people say, hey, Neil, they shout his name out. Yeah. And he's thinking, I don't even know you. you know? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you know me. I don't know you. That puts him at a disadvantage right off the bat. Right. In his mind, you know. Yeah, but it's living on a lighted stage approaches the unreal for those who think and feel. (laughs) Now, is he saying that John Bon Jovi doesn't think and feel? Is that what he's saying? I think that might be. This is is written before Bon Jovi was written. But yes, (laughs) the idea that some people just don't really like maybe think about exactly what they're doing. Is that too harsh? Am I interpreting that too hard? No, no, I, I think so. I mean, I was just joking about Bon Jovi only because you brought him up. Right. 
Um, yeah, for those who think and feel in touch with some reality beyond the gilded cage. So those are the people for whom living on a lighted stage approaches the unreal, right? People who think and feel who are in touch with reality beyond this cage of um, celebrity yeah. or being famous. I, I looked up gilded cage. Did you know there are three movies named the gilded cage? <laughs> no. 1916, 1955, and another one in 2013. Yeah. Didn't, I didn't know. So apparently a gilded cage is a cage covered in gold. Yes. So what it means, I guess, is living in a luxurious prison. Yeah, luxurious prison, right? Exactly. <laughs> Which is how Neil felt, I guess. Right. And everybody thinks that you're, you know, living the high life because you're in a, uh, a cage made of gold. Right. <laughs> As if that's better than any other cage. It's still a cage. Yeah. Well, you don't think about it, though. Those of us who are not famous don't think about the fact that people who are famous feel trapped like that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's some people love fame, though, and others just don't. Kurt Cobain never wanted to be famous. You know what I mean? He had a really hard time with it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's hard. Some people, like Bono, I think Bono loves being famous. <laughs> well, yeah, but and I, as you mentioned, Kurt Cobain, I'm sure he never, not only did he not love being famous, I'm sure he never expected to be famous. No. I mean, you think about that. When they made Nevermind, do you think they actually thought that was going to be as huge as it was? Could possibly dream it? I can't imagine they did, no. No. So it happened so fast. Like you said, with Rush, it was more gradual at least. Yeah. With Nirvana, it was, they were nobody one day and they were huge the next day. Yeah. Which is a lot to deal with. It is a lot to deal with. But then we go into the next part of the song, right? Cast in this unlikely role, ill-equipped to act. So that's what you were saying before, you know what I mean? Like they kind of chose this profession, mm -hmm. right? But I think the unlikely part of it is that they are successful. <laughs> right. Because maybe, the, maybe they never thought that they'd be successful either. I mean, you know, kind of like pinning your entire career on being famous or being a, a famous musician. That's a, that's a tough one, right? <laughs> I'm sure they hoped they would be successful. Yeah. But they never dreamed they would be this successful. Yeah. I don't think Neil ever thought it would get to the point where he was that uncomfortable just walking around. Yeah. So cast in this unlikely role, ill-equipped to act with insufficient tact. Love that. Yeah. He's, you know, he just doesn't have whatever, you know, it seems like Alex and Getty kind of have a handle on how to like deal with people. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like, like you said earlier, Neil just didn't like people coming up with him. He couldn't be, he couldn't say like no in a tactful way. Yeah. And he loved interacting with people. Just he wanted to be on their level. Right. Exactly. That's the difference. He felt like he was just like you and me. Yeah. But then, you know, this is probably the, the, the most Neil line in maybe any Rush song, right? One must put up barriers to keep oneself intact. <laughs> Which is exactly what he did all the time. Yeah, exactly. He never took part in those meet and greets. Getty and Alex did those all the time. Right. And, you know, and until the last show, he never came out to the front of the stage either, right? He would just raise his hand, wave to the crowd, and yep. run off right after the show. So then we get to the chorus. We actually have a chorus here, Jer. We do have a chorus. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> I love a good chorus. 
living in the limelight, the universal dream for those who wish to seem. I think it's uh, living in the limelight, the universal dream for those who wish to seem. There's people who wish to pretend, I think, right? They want to seem to be something as opposed to being it. Okay. So for, so for those people, living in the limelight is, is the dream. It's the universal dream for those who wish to seem. But for those who wish to be, right? Those who, but those who wish to be must put aside the alienation. So it's in contrast to the people who, who wish to seem. Right. It's the people who wish to be. They must put aside the alienation, get on with the fascination, the real relation, the underlying theme, which is, we could probably talk for the next 20 minutes about what might be the underlying theme. (laughs) (laughs) Right? The underlying theme to me is the music. Yeah, the underlying theme, I think, would be the thing that brings you where you are, right? What are they doing? Why are they making music? What are they doing on stage? It's the art, you know, the art of whatever it is. Music, yeah, exactly. painting, whatever, whatever your, your thing is. Right. And I think you might have mentioned this before on a previous podcast about how some lead singers are just like, you know, how you doing, New York? You know what I mean? Like all this fake kind of stuff that yeah, yeah. said that, that Getty never really did. And I think, you know, a little bit, those might be the people who wish to seem. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They want to be rock stars as opposed to musicians. Right. For Russia, it was always just about the music. Right. Absolutely. And then, put as, for those who wish to be, must put aside the alienation and get on with the fascination. I think, what do you think the alienation is? It's the alienation from, like, the normal folk, their normal lives? Yeah, I mean, it's loneliness because you can't, I mean, you can't go, to, for instance, let's say Neil liked to go to a diner and, and have a sandwich. You can't do it because you're Neil Peart. Right. And if he goes into a diner, especially out, outside the arena where they just played a show, yeah, he's going to get mobbed. He is. So the alienation is having to sit in his hotel room and get room service instead of being out in the world doing what he likes to do. Now, maybe getting a sandwich at a diner, it could be something else. Right. Which is why I think he loved riding his motorcycle because he could be by himself riding the motorcycle. Yeah. With the helmet on. Yeah, exactly. The masked rider. <laughs> yeah, really, it's true. I mean, you look at sports people, the most unrecognizable people in sports are football players. Oh, yeah. Football players can walk around and do whatever they want if they're not superstar football players. Right. People don't recognize them because they have a helmet on all the time. Yeah. So Neil would uh, go bike riding with his helmet and people wouldn't notice him. Yeah, it's true. Which is just how he liked it. Yeah. And, you know, I was going to mention, uh, do you know what limelight is? And you always hear that, you know, limelight is just like being in the spotlight. But do you know where it comes from? I, I do because I looked it up. Oh, okay. Did you look it up? Yeah. Well, tell us. Tell us what it is. Well, before electricity, in order to light a stage or some kind of performance, uh, they would heat up a piece of limestone. And when you heat it up with candles or whatever, it glows really, really brightly. And then they would use that, like focus that and use that as a, as the spotlight. So you're in the limelight. So you're in the limelight. And I, I read it was used in the theater in 1855 for the first time and became widely used by the 1860s. I'm sure it smelled really bad. <laughs> well, you had to get lit up somehow, right? Yeah, it's true. So when you're famous, you're in the limelight. Yeah. It's weird how some things stick around for a long time, right? 
Yeah, and you don't even think about why limelight is limelight. Limelight. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Yeah. So we get to the next portion of the song, living in a fisheye lens, caught in the camera eye, I have no heart to lie. And then, of course, the most famous line of this song. Yeah. I can't pretend a stranger is a long-awaited friend. Yeah. I, th- I think I said before that um, the most Neil line of the song is one must put up barriers to keep oneself intact. I was wrong. It's <laughs> I can't pretend a stranger is a long-awaited friend. You know, how perfect is that? Oh, it's perfect. It's, it sums up Neil perfectly. It, yeah, it sums up the situation perfectly. I just can't. Yeah. You, you're coming up to me, like you said before. You know me. You have a relationship with me, some kind of relationship with me. And I don't, you know, and he doesn't have a relationship back. It's got to be so weird, right? Yeah. Well, that's why if, I'm sorry, go ahead. Have you ever uh, approached a famous person on the street? No, no. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't because I just feel weird about it. Yeah. I've never done it either. And I've seen famous people and I just don't, I just don't do it. In my line of work, I've run across famous people too, but I would just say hello to them like I would anybody else. Right. And I think that, that most people prefer that. Yeah, I would imagine, I would think so. Can you imagine walking around all day and having people say hello to you and want to shake your hand and want your autograph and it must be tiresome. Yeah. Unless you're John Bon Jovi. Unless you're John bon Jovi. He loves that. <laughs> I have no idea. This is going to be pile on John Bon Jovi. Oh, poor John. Poor no. John. Poor John. He's from New Jersey, our home state. He is. He is. We should be nicer to him. I love the fisheye lens line too. Yeah. Fisheye lens creates a panoramic view. Yeah. So you think that means that he's caught in this, this view where everyone can see everything that he does his whole life and everything. Yeah. So no matter where he is, I mean, it's a, it's a wide lens, right? So he could be way off to the side doing his thing. And that wide lens is still going to capture him. That's the way I interpret it. And then he's caught in the camera eye because people are taking photos all the time. Yeah. Can't go anywhere. Yeah. Stay in the hotel. Got to stay in that hotel. Or on your bike. <laughs> but then we get a Shakespeare quote coming up, Steve. Yeah. Which of course is, isn't new for them, right? No, no. They, they've used this for all the world to stage their, their live album. Yep. All the world's indeed a stage and we are merely players, performers, and portrayers. Each another's audience outside the gilded cage. So even, so what I take from that is that even when you are not performing on the gilded cage or on the lighted stage, right? You still have to perform for people, right? Because you're a famous person, or at least people are expecting you to be a certain thing. Is that what you get? No, I think what it's saying is that celebrity means nothing. All the world's Hmm. a stage. We're all equal. We're all on that stage. Oh yeah. I like that. Every person is a star in their own way. He didn't feel like he was different than anyone else. Yeah. So I think that line is him saying, we're all equals here. Yeah. I agree with that, man. Yeah. I like that. We're each other's audience outside the gilded cage. That's right. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. And, you know, I thought it, it's, it reminded me a little bit of a, a line from Entree New. You know, it says, we are strangers to each other full of sliding panels and illusion show acting well, rehearsed routines or playing from the heart. It's hard for one to know, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Acting are people acting or not. 
Now, I know we talk about this all the time, but next is Alex's guitar solo, Jer. I know. I mean, I know. come on. How great is this solo? Uh, without a doubt, this is my favorite Lifeson solo. Let's play a little bit of it before you keep going. I mean, so emotional, so perfect. It is absolutely perfect. You know what this solo says? What? It says, leave my friend Neil alone. <laughs> That's what I hear. Right? I, that might be the subtext, yeah. <laughs> leave my friend Neil alone. <laughs> I wonder if you like plotted out all the notes, if it kind of spells out something. <laughs> Leave my friend Neil alone. Leave, leave Neil alone. Of course, there is no end note, but that's okay. No, um, that's true. So I have a quote from Alex. On the solo? On the solo. Oh, great. It says, after, he says, it's funny. After all these years, the solo to Limelight is my favorite to play live. There's something very sad and lonely about it. It exists in its own little world. And I think in its own way, it reflects the nature of the song's lyrics, feeling isolated amidst chaos and adulation. Yeah. He tried to put himself in Neil's shoes and this is what came out. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've said this before. I think once when we were talking to Mark about uh, concerts that we've been to, Alex playing this solo on the Time Machine tour when we saw them mm -hmm. at Jones Beach. One of the best solos I've ever heard in my life at all from anyone. Did he do it the same way he did it on the record or was it different? I don't remember. I I, it was it was basically the same. I mean, he usually did his solos pretty basically the same. There was just something about it, though. You know what I mean? It was extra emotional for some reason. Because the way toward the end where he just holds the note at the end. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it kind of slowly fades into the note that's kind of behind. And then he starts with another part of the solo, out of the solo. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do love it. Now, I want to give Getty and Neil some props here, too. The bass tone on this song is perfect. I mean, just the sound coming out of that bass. You know, I, I did a little research. I read somewhere it's a Fender jazz bass, a 72 Fender jazz bass. Yeah. A lot of people say it's a Rickenbacker. It's got that Rickenbacker kind of sound to it, and Getty played that a lot. Yeah. I never did find out exactly what bass he used on this song. At least I couldn't find any documentation of it. Oh, I'm sure somebody knows. So, well, Getty, I'm sure knows. <laughs> well, somebody who can tell us. <laughs> and Neil, Neil, the fills that Neil does in this song yeah. are just amazing. And this has another one of those moments I was talking about with Red Barchetta. It's not, not a moment of silence, but it's just Neil's fill. Right before Getty says, we are merely players, that fill that Neil does, but I don't. Yeah. It's just kind of just Neil isolated there. It's my favorite moment of the song. Yeah. Just just incredible. 
there, you know, and there is a kind of a moment of of silence as the solo starts too. Yeah, yeah. And then it just kind of like starts. I'm I'm, I'm with Alex. I'm with Alex 100. I probably wouldn't have said it the way he did, but you know, it is a very lonely solo. It almost the the first the beginning of it is almost like a cry. Yeah. I'm going to start crying right now thinking about it. <laughs> well, it's the alienation, right? Yeah. That's what Alex was trying to capture in the solo. The loneliness that Neil was feeling in his situation. Yeah. And he, as usual, he did an excellent job. He did a, a really great job. Really great job. I have another question for you, Jar. Oh, yeah. Let's hear it. This is, this is a made-for-radio song, right? Even though Rush didn't make it for radio, clearly. Yep. Is this Rush's most accessible song? Is it their most accessible song? Good question, right? It is. I'm gonna I'm gonna say yes. I'm gonna say yes it is. I think so, right? Yeah. Even, even more so than the spirit of radio. I mean, the spirit of radio is just so crazy, you know? I mean, it's got so many different parts. Everybody yeah. knows it, but does everybody love it? Rush That's fans right. do, but right. they're just rock and roll fans. Yeah. Yeah, and Tom Sawyer starts off weird too. And Tom Sawyer has its detractors, right? Really? I think so. To the non-Rush fan, I mean. Oh, maybe, yeah. I mean accessible to all, not just Rush fans. Because all Rush songs are accessible to us. I was just going to say, if they, if they worked harder, maybe all songs would be accessible to them. <laughs> Come on, people who don't listen to Rush. What's going on with you? But I think this might be it. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you on that one, Steve. Okay. But there's this video on YouTube where Alex demonstrates how to play Limelight. Oh, really? Yeah, and he does, he literally, he, there's like a little interview part, and then he breaks it down note for note, chord by chord, how to play the song. Wow. He plays it slow, and then he plays it fast, and then at the end, he plays the whole song through with, with the record. Okay. And it's, it's, it's amazing. But there's one funny part, because he's, he's showing how to play the solo, and the solo is just like, bending strings and he's got the tremolo on and he's just like whacking the tremolo and so he's he goes through the solo and then he says and then tune your guitar immediately <laughs> <laughs> so how did he how did he do that live he played the solo and then he had to play the rest of the song with the the out of tune guitar oh i don't <laughs> right i guess so but yeah it's, it's crazy watching him play the solo is crazy the way he those strings are ending beyond beyond belief yeah so the ending of this song jar one of the great rush song endings i think too yeah definitely and we come right uh, come coming out of the solo man getty he is into this song you can tell by his voice you know yeah and the bass line is just great there yeah, too as they as they kick back into the living in the limelight the chorus again yeah just the bass is like -na 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 -na, you know it's crazy yeah it is crazy. Really good. Crazy. But yeah, and, and I do love the ending of this song. This is a great like uh, concert kind of ending song, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Down, 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 down. Then it's Yeah. You could, you could end, a show, end a set, end a show with this, and right. it, it's the best ending there is. Yeah. You can definitely play the song and just say, good night, Cleveland, and be done. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah. So overall, Steve, ten out of ten. Ten out of ten. But I'm I'm gonna go I'm gonna go out on a limb here, Jared. I'm not putting this in my top ten. 
as much You're as not. I love it. I'm not. Wow. Because I've discovered that I can't put them all in my top 10. <laughs> yeah, but you've done, it hadn't stopped you before. It hasn't stopped me before, but it's stopping me now. Would you though, if you had an unlimited number of top 10? If 10 was 100, <laughs> yes. If 10 was 100. <laughs> if 10 was 20, I would put this in. <laughs> 10 can be 20. I mean, what's, what's a number, Steve? What's counting? <laughs> You know what I could do with my top 10? I could do like half of Limelight, half of Red Barchetta. Oh, I like that. I could put them together. Right. That counts as one. No? Sure. <laughs> you'd, have, you'd have to somehow stick them together in one song. Oh, boy. All right. We should get to the next track on this CD or album, whatever you want to call it. I'm calling it an album. The Side 2 Opener. The Side 2 Opener. And they deliberately put this song as the side two opener. They they thought this out for sure. Oh, definitely. Well, this is this is when you had to sequence albums. Yeah. Where there was a, a reason for doing for putting songs in the order they're in. But again, I saw an interview with Neil and he said even after that, they thought about the vinyl pressing of the album and which song would be the first on the second side of the vinyl, even yeah. though nobody was buying vinyl. Yeah. Well, it's just the way they were they kind of learned how to do it. Yeah. And, and now people are buying vinyl again. So luckily for them, they did it. Yeah. I wonder how that is as I don't buy a lot of vinyl and certainly not of newer bands, but I wonder if newer bands are thinking of that now. No, I don't think they are. No. Right. No. Like in, like in the nineties, you know, when people were using all of the CD, you know, 68 minutes or 70 minutes or whatever. And you know, since there's no sides, you just kind of string a bunch of songs together. I wonder if you got like a, you know, now that people are pressing vinyl, if they give any thought to that when they're writing an album and putting the album together. I think they may now. Yeah. It's possible. I don't know. All right, Jared, well, let's jump into it. The Camera Eye. camera eye steve yeah the thing that i remember most about this is seeing it live for the first time do you remember when that was yes that was the time machine tour yeah okay they played moving pictures in its entirety and that was the first time they had played this song since the signals tour which was before our concert going time that's right and something about them playing this song live and seeing the video that they played in the background, I don't know if there was a video for this song or not, but I had never seen it with um, the black and white footage of New York and London and the hustle and bustle and the yeah. movement over the bridges and, yeah. and tunnels and all that stuff. It just added so much to the song for me. Yeah, this has always been one of my favorite songs. And I, I do love the way that it just kind of slowly kind of comes in. It's almost like a city, the city's waking up. Yeah. I mean, you get the sound effects of the, of the city at the beginning. It's, I guess, what is it like the first 15 seconds or so you just hear traffic sounds and a whistle. Yeah. I mean, it, we talked about cinematic songs, you know, we we're talking about permanent waves, but this might be better, I think, than Jacob's Ladder for me when it comes to cinematic songs. Yeah. But it's, 
very similar to Jacob's Ladder. I always kind of put these two songs almost together in my mind. They're yeah, very similar songs, and just how it builds. Yeah, the slow build with with the keyboards and Neil's almost kind of marching drums. Yeah, how it builds up. Even that, you know, even that the, the way the the um all the instruments come in kind of feels almost as if the band is waking up, right? Yeah, I I can almost picture almost like you're soaring over the city skyline when those guitars come in, you know, and you're almost like taking off and looking at the the skyline of the city. Yeah. And then the drums. Yeah. And then the, then the song proper starts. Mm -hmm. It's great. Yeah. And you know, I I guess it's uh, fitting for it to be like New York, right? Because New York does have that kind of feeling to it. The thing that he writes, I've never been to London, but what he writes about New York is definitely true feeling that you get when you're in the city oh yeah well the both of us work in the city so we're yeah we're in the city every day well not not today we're not not for the past four months <laughs> we are always grim-faced and forbidding with our faces closed tight is there really a better way to describe new yorkers walking oh no because that? that's what you do you you kind of put the blinders on and you just go you know right never Never make eye contact. No. Nope. Just just walk. Everybody walking at a breakneck pace, just getting getting to where they're going. The thing that's amazing about New York City is that pretty much anything can happen on the street, in the subway. You know, there could be a guy on the side of the road doing anything, tearing right. his clothes off, making some sort of scene, something stupid, and yep. people just keep walking. Yep. You know, if that happened in El Paso, Texas, everybody would be like, what, <laughs> right. what the heck's going on over here, you know? <laughs> exactly. But New York, eh, just another day. Keep on just, moving. Just, in, just another corner. Keep going. <laughs> There'll be something else, probably something weirder around the next corner. Pacing in rhythm. An angular mass of New Yorkers pacing in uh, rhythm. I just love the verbs in this song. I just love them. I love how this song is, how the lyrics perfectly match the feeling of a city yeah especially this city it's a little different when we when he starts talking about london but grim-faced and forbidding an angular mass of new yorkers pacing in rhythm race the oncoming night they chase through the streets of manhattan i love headfirst humanity yeah that's great because you know when you're in kind of in the city you know you're going your head you're going head first you know what i mean like Everything about kind of New York is is a little fast paced, and you mm-hmm. definitely have to lean into things head first. You just have to just keep going. Oh God, I love this song. Yeah, and chase through the streets of Manhattan is perfect because people it are is. moving, man. Yeah, most people are. Yeah, well, not in Times Square anymore. <laughs> I used to work right near Times Square. I used to work in the building next to um, the Ed Sullivan Theater. Oh yeah. So it was like on the, on the edge, I guess, of Times Square. But Times Square back then, though, when this song was written, was a very different place. Oh, yeah. That's the thing you have to think about, too, is that he was writing about New York maybe 1979, 1980. Oh, yeah. A totally different city than it is today. Oh, absolutely. But in many ways the same, though, because a lot of these lyrics still work. Yeah. They all do, really. Yeah. They seem oblivious to a soft spring rain, like an English rain, so light yet endless from a leaden sky. That's beautiful. It is beautiful. And you know, the thing is, you can be oblivious to a soft spring rain in the city. I mean, maybe everywhere, but a lot of times, you know, there's updrafts 
<laughs> There's weird winds. Yeah, the rain doesn't even hit you. It rain doesn't even hit you. <laughs> it's crazy, right? It's true. It's raining it, and the rain hits the buildings and doesn't hit you. Right. Every once in a while though, and when it's clear, you might get hit with some water out of nowhere. You don't know what that is. <laughs> air conditioning water. I, I like to think it's air conditioning water, but you never know. Oh, <laughs> uh, so true. Yeah. And then the buildings are lost in their limitless rise. My feet catch the pulse and the purposeful stride. So this is like, I guess him being in the city, right? And this is when he kind of feels what the city, the energy of the city, right? Mm-hmm. His feet catch the pulse and the purposeful stride. And he says, I feel the, sen- the sense of possibilities. I feel the wrench of hard realities, which I, th- I think it might, might be, you know, more about the city in the seventies yeah. than it is kind of today. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause there was a lot, I don't know. You didn't really, so when we were growing up, we did not go into New York City. Well, the first time I went into New York City by myself had to be late 80s. Late 80s. This was, you know, it still wasn't great, but it wasn't late 70s New York. No, no. We used to go every once in a while, almost every year to go see the circus, Barnum Bailey Circus at Madison Square Garden. Okay. And we would go on the train, get into the city, go to go to the circus and get the hell out as quickly as possible. <laughs> well, and your parents were probably smart to do that. Yeah. There, cause it was, it was kind of, kind of a cesspool. But I remember in the late eighties walking around Manhattan in at night, you know, not late at night, eight, nine yeah. o'clock at night and being afraid. Yeah. Just walking around midtown. Yeah, I know. And now, you know, it's completely different. I know if you plopped, if you took somebody out of the seventies, New York and then plopped them into Times Square right now, the, they would, they, well, I don't know. I wonder what they would think. <laughs> I don't know. It certainly wasn't an M&M store. No. In Times Square in the <laughs> 70s. <laughs> so do you think Neil felt more comfortable in a city like London or New York just because there were so many people he could kind of get lost in that sea of, of humanity? I think so. I would imagine so. Yeah, absolutely. I would think so. No. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I, I, I'm just guessing that, that Neil liked New York and liked London. Oh yeah. I he definitely must've because, well, obviously he spent enough time in both cities or else he could never have written a song like this. Right. The way he captures just the different feelings. Like I said, I've never been to London, but the, the type you know, the words that he uses to describe London are different than the ones he uses to describe New York. It's almost like two songs in one. It is, yeah. Because you, you get that piano at the beginning, before the New York part, and then yeah. when we get into the London part, that starts up again. Yeah, I know. You know, and, and it's, just, it's just great. And then the drums, the huge drum fills Neil's doing. I know. I saw an interview with Neil. He said that his experience in London was taken from when he lived there before he was in Rush. Oh, really? Yeah, I know they were there for tours, but he was talking specifically about living there. Yeah. So we we get into the London part, part two. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, New York is uh, grim-faced and forbidding, right? Angular, pacing. But then we get to London, it's wide-angle watchers on life's ancient tales. (laughs) (laughs) Steeped in the history of London, green and gray washes in the wispy white veil. It's a totally different feeling. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, mist in the streets of Westminster, 
wistful and weathered, the pride still prevails alive in the streets of the city, which is, you know, London, obviously different than New York, that London, there's a lot of history and old buildings still left. Yeah. And I love the contrast of this next line to the New York one. So he's asking now, are they oblivious to this quality? Yeah. Which I think is, is great in contrast to, they seem oblivious to, you know, the soft spring rain. So a soft spring rain. Yeah. Yeah. Are there people who, who live in London oblivious to the quality of light, right? A quality mm-hmm. of light unique to every city's streets. I guess, you know, that happens when you live somewhere. Oh yeah. You just kind of become inured. You just get used to it. Yeah. You just get used to it. But you know, then we come to this little part that people have talked about, you know, there's like this, you can hear somebody murmuring in the background. Yeah, I read about that. I I couldn't really make it out myself. I've always heard it. I never knew what it was. But I think the consensus is somebody saying like, hello, governor or morning governor. But there are a lot of different <laughs> different ideas of what's really being said. Yeah, I read it was Getty who supposedly said this line. Yeah, something like hello and then morning governor. Which I, I guess, I mean, I, I always heard it and I always just assumed it was just a noise. I never really could hear anything until I read it. And then I was just like, oh yeah, I guess that's what it sounds like. But that just made me more, you know, recognizing it after somebody tells you what it is. Yeah, yeah. So what about this next line, Jar? Pavements may teem with intense energy, but the city is calm in this violent sea. Yeah. Another great line. Another great line. And, you know, I mean, so for him, you know, London is a lot, like he says, a, a calmer place, right? Mm-hmm. Than New York. Because everything, imagine. Yeah, I would imagine it is, right? At least to him. Because all the, all the W's he uses at the beginning of the description definitely gives it kind of a, a softer tone. Mm-hmm. You know, green and gray washes in the wispy, I love that, in the wispy white veil. And that was deliberately done, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Everything... Is deliberately done. But then we have this solo. Alex did a great solo. That's strange. (laughs) This solo. I know I said that the solo for Limelight (laughs) (laughs) might be my favorite. This is a, this is, this is definitely up there. Oh yeah. Tone. I mean, you know what? And the thing is he doesn't really go crazy on this solo. He's taking, you know, he's taking his time playing this solo. It stretches out. But he just captures the moment perfectly. Yeah. In this song and, and every solo really, but especially this one, just, a, just amazing. He is. Al, Alex was in rare form on this record, really. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, this was a great solo too when we, when we saw them on the Time Machine tour. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I saw a Neil interview. He was kind of going through moving pictures song by song. I might've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't find much on this song. So I decided to watch that. And he said that the title of this song was taken from a John Dos Passos novel from the 1930s called The Camera Eye. Okay. And apparently John Dos Passos used a newsreel to describe the events of the day that affected his characters. Oh, okay. And I, I found text of this book. Yeah. I don't think I could possibly read this book, Jer. Why? This was. I found it on, um, let's see, uh, classicesquire.com. Okay. 
And this is just the editor's note. Okay, this is funny. Let's see. Uh, Esquire's plain readers have complained in increasing numbers and with rising violence about the difficulty of Dos Passos prose. Hence this note on how to read it. First, do not, it's seriously, first, do not insist upon making consecutive sense of every phrase and sentence as you go along. (laughs) The effect is as cumulative as that of music or painting. Second, remember, this is the verbal equivalent of the exclusive technique of photography. Oh my God. Registering apparently irrelevant and even distracting detail for the sake of achieving a complete atmospheric approximation of reality. Oh my God. (laughs) And then I scrolled down to read some of it. I couldn't understand any of it. (laughs) That guy's not selling this, this novel to anybody, I guess. I guess not. But, but the thing I'm thinking is I bet you Neil read this and understood it. Yeah, definitely. I now want to read it. (laughs) I think you should read it. This is going to be the true test of your intelligence, Jar, because you're an intelligent guy. If you can read this (laughs) and understand it, I'd bow to you. Okay. Okay. Maybe we should do a podcast where we just read that novel. Okay. <laughs> Out loud. You can read the novel and you can explain it to us. How's that? I don't think it has anything to do with the song other than the title. I thought it would be interesting to look at just because Neil probably read it. Yeah. And I'm thinking there's no way I can read this. No way. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, he also found inspiration. Neil said from a John Steinbeck quote. Oh, quote that said every city has a unique quality of light yeah so there you go he drew inspiration from that quote as well yeah good old john steinbeck so there you go much easier to read yes much easier to read (laughs) and the the last note i have on the camera eye this is the final rush song jer that was longer than 10 minutes oh 10 minutes and 56 seconds after that everything shorter shorter much shorter yeah i guess so so overall, the camera eye, Jar, and limelight, what do you think? Masterpieces. That's what I think. Yeah. So we're now, what, three episodes into our moving pictures? <laughs> what do you call a four-part trilogy, Jar? Uh, nothing. It's four. <laughs> <laughs> what's it? Well, there's a trilogy, and then what's the fourth? Uh, just an extra one. I don't know what you'd call it. <laughs> anyway, we've got one more to go. We're going to do Witch Hunt and vital signs in the next episode i'm excited yeah if anyone's still with us i think people are still with us i mean if you're not with us through this you're not with us at all (laughs) that's true right (laughs) yeah i guess so if you're with us you're with us at this point what we're 42 episodes in (laughs) yeah either you're with us or you're not (laughs) you can find us on twitter at rush fancast instagram the rushcast email jerry the email address is the rushcast at gmail.com and jerry Please, give me a quote. Don't make me pull it out of you. No, of course not. Of course I have a quote, Steve. <laughs> All the world's indeed a stage, and we are merely players, performers, and portrayers, each another's audience outside the gilded cage. Perfect way to sum it up. Yep. Yeah. Take it easy. All right, see you.